book of Romans, chapter 8. We will soon be reading, beginning in verse 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pew section in front of you where there's a black Bible, and you can find Romans chapter 8 on page 888 of that Bible. The Olympics are coming again, which is no surprise. They now come every two years. I remember as a kid, this is my old man speaking, right? I'm now an old old man where I can lament about the changes that used to be. We only had Olympics every four years, and now you kids don't even have to wait for them. Uh, but the Olympics are coming again, and I'll be honest with you, I'm not a terribly big fan of the Olympics. I just, I don't care for them all that much. I think that they, they make too much of a spectacle out of them, and, and the whole, like, we're all unified through sport thing is just a little bit much for me. I mean, they're, they're hosting it in Beijing this year as though the Olympic Committee was completely unaware of the, the crisis of human rights violations that are happening in China right now, or they don't care, as though we can simply have sport together and say, hey, we're all unified because we, we watch somebody throw a javelin or something like that. So I'm not quite on board with all of the Olympic stuff. However, there are wonderful stories that come out of it. These are sports that are not always the, the sports that we think of when we think of all of the people who make money playing professional sports. Some of these are, are very odd sports, they're very minor sports, and they're filled with people who love doing them and have spent a huge amount of labor and time simply to get to the Olympics. There are people who will not make millions of dollars out of all the labor and work that they put in. Most of them won't make much of anything out of it. As a matter of fact, for many of them, it costs them more than they will ever make. They will not be given multi-million dollar and lucrative ad campaigns. They will simply go back to their hometowns with stories of how they went to Beijing and competed in the Olympics, some perhaps even taking home a medal. They have put in hours, if not years, of work, sacrificing much, simply for the right to show up and simply say that they were there. I always wondered if you met one of them, these people who spent years and hours laboring and, and sacrificing so much of their lives for this one event, just, just this one event, if you were to catch them on their deathbed, the end of their life, let's say looking back over the entirety of your life, it was all of that labor, it was all of the, the toil, all the pain, all the suffering, all the things that you had to put aside, was it worth it? If you asked somebody, was it worth it, all those hours in the pool simply to go and do water polo in Beijing. I guess as they would say, probably, without any hesitation at all, absolutely. Because they'd love it. Because it's the highest achievement in their particular sport. They would say it was worth all the toil, all the suffering, it was worth it. Christians, likewise, have much to suffer in this world. As Paul and we with Paul continue to move deeper into the brilliance of the eighth chapter, he wants to press into us very, very clearly the same sort of idea that I think most Olympians would have on their deathbed. My friends, striving for holiness, striving for the things of God is indeed filled with suffering, and it is indeed filled with toil, 
but in the end, it will be worth it. Strive for holiness, for sanctification. Endure the pain of that effort, for you will see the good of it in the end of time. Let us read from the book of Romans today, chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. There Paul writes, So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. May God add his blessing to this reading of his infallible and inerrant word. The first thing that Paul has for us today is the proclamation that we must kill our sin. Kill your sin, friends. The translation that we have here in verse 12 seems to be something of an incomplete thought. Paul begins by saying we are debtors not to the flesh, but he never actually kind of comes back and says what we are debtors to. Given the way in which he has continually refrained or continually as a refrain talked about the, the comparison of the flesh with the spirit, it is likely that many of us, if we were to fill in the other side of that, say, what are we actually debtors to? We would say, well, we are debtors to the spirit. And Paul often says that we are debtors to things. It's not as though the idea of a debt is unfamiliar to Paul. In 1.14 and 13.8 and in 15.1, here just in the book of Romans, he talks about being a debtor. He talks about Christians being a debtor. In 1.14, he says, I am a debtor. Paul himself is a debtor to barbarians and Greeks, to the wise and to the foolish, to take to them the gospel. In 13.8, we are to be debtors, not in owing one another fiscally, but we are to be debtors to one another in love. In 15.1, he talks about how the strong are debtors to the weak. They're an obligation to those who are weak. But it's interesting, in Paul, never does he talk about, and, and really in the rest of the New Testament, you don't ever hear it being talked about as though we are somehow debtors to what God has done for us. God has not acted in such a way to give us salvation so that we might be put back in his debt that is the very thing that he has freed us from, is the debt that we owed to him. We do not owe God. And even though it seems like we should, the fact that Paul continually calls this a gift, the wages of sin is death, what you are owed from sin is death, but the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ is a free gift. There's a free gift. We know that it's wrong to pay back people for a gift. If somebody came up to you and said, hey, I've, I've got a gift for you, and you were to immediately reach in and be like, hey, uh, here's a 20, thank you, right? That is an incredibly ungracious thing to do, as though the gift itself wasn't good enough. You have to sort of repay people for it. Certainly, it's worse if you try to pay back a very rich and generous gift like that of salvation, something that you cannot possibly pay back. It is a gift. Because of this, a translation like the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, 
translates this first verse somewhat differently. It says, so then, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to the flesh. So you can see that they're not calling us obligators at all. We're not debtors at all. I don't think that that's quite right. I think that Paul has in mind that we are debtors to one another, and I think that he comes back to it. But I just wanted to make sure that we clarified that at the very beginning. You're not debtors to God. He has given you a free gift. He has not done that so that you would feel obligated to him. As a matter of fact, it goes central It goes against the central idea of what Paul is saying here and what he said earlier. But what Paul wants to do is to press upon us the need to work in the Spirit to kill our sin. He says you are no longer under any obligation to do what the flesh wants you to do. You might feel pulled toward it. You might feel like it's a natural thing to do. You might feel at times like it's the right thing to do. But he is is openly saying you are not obligated anymore to do it. Before you had the Spirit, you were obligated to do it. You were in slavery to your sin, but no longer are you in slavery to your sin. Jesus Christ has freed you from that. Last week, we talked about how his death on a cross and the provision of the Spirit for us as one act where we receive those things in faith frees us from the work of sin in our lives. You're not under any obligation to engage in sin anymore. We looked back at chapter 7, and in chapter 7... Many people thinking that Paul's struggle there, I I do not do the things that I want to do, but I do the very things that I don't want to do, is his struggle between his mind and what he desires to do before God and what his body will allow him to do. Many view that as a post-Christian experience, that he is struggling with sin in himself. So that's a way to sort of temper the positivity and the enthusiasm of chapter 6. I don't think that is true. I think that it is true here, though. I think Paul is trying to make the case that, yes, there is still sin that you need to deal with. That simply because Christ has died for you and the Spirit has been provided for you doesn't mean that you wake up with 100% holiness and you are righteous in all your ways and all your actions. It certainly does not mean that. He says very clearly, you must put to death the deeds of the body. He says, if you don't, If you don't put to death the deeds of the body, if you live according to the flesh, if you live in the flesh and according to the flesh, he says, you will die. The phrase has a a ring of more than just like, this is a future thing that's going to happen to you. It's not the same language that's used in Genesis, but it has the same ring to it. You will almost certainly die. There's, There's so much more of a cemented reality there that this isn't a possibility. If you live according to the flesh, you will certainly end up dying. Paul wants to make clear for them, maybe some of you have had some sort of ecstatic experience in the Spirit. You thought that you have received the Spirit. You think that the Spirit indwells you. You felt pulled toward the things of the Spirit at some point in time. And he he wants to look at them and say, listen, if you continue though, no matter what kind of experience you might have thought that you had, if you continue to live in the flesh, according to the flesh, doing the things that God has commanded you not to do, you, you will die. Death is certain for you. He's very clear though, there is life though. He says you must kill the deeds of the body through the Spirit. You must work at this. It's not going to come naturally. You have to actually fight the sin in your body. You've got to fight the habits. You've got to fight the temptations. You've got to fight the things that are persistent in you. You have to fight them. 
You must put to death the deeds of the body. You are not passive anymore. Simply because you have the Spirit of God doesn't mean you get to let go and let God and that holiness just kind of washes over you like waves on a beach. You have to fight for it. You have to strive for it. We have a wonderful picture, I think, of what this looks like from the Old Testament. The Old Testament often presents pictures of things that are visible and physical, of realities that once we come to the New Testament quite clearly are invisible or internal. After all, we, we know that our great enemy is Satan, not the nations that he controls. Our slavery, even as Paul has been talking about our slavery here, is to sin and to the flesh. It is not to Egypt. The temple is not a physical building, but it is now the people of God. These sort of images are given to us to show us something of the reality that he could not show us any other way. So we know that as Moses stands on the precipice of the promised land, not being allowed to enter in, he looks at the people and he gives them final commandments in the book of Deuteronomy, one final sermon from Moses to give them pointers, to give them statements of what has happened, to make sure that he is clear of them, the kind of God that they are serving, what God expects of them. And he gives them in an extended sermon, extended bit that we are going to read here out of Deuteronomy 7, a very clear command of what they are to do when they enter the promised land. In Deuteronomy 7, we read this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of, and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you, and you defeat them. Notice that beautiful pairing of that. There's other, other passages where God will talk about the taking of the promised land as though he has sent a hornet in to the land before them. You can imagine coming across a hornet's nest and how everyone runs from that. He says that's exactly what's going to happen. They will run from you like they're being chased by hornets. It is the work of God that hands them over. They are mightier. They are stronger than you. I will go in. I will be with you. But nevertheless, you defeat them. It is God's work. It is their work. You defeat them. He says, when God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them, show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving them to your daughters, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the house of the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. 
the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall be careful, therefore, to do the commandments and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. When the people were to take over the land, they were to understand that God was going to drive the people out before them. They were the ones who were going to completely and utterly destroy them, but it is God who has given them over to them. And God says very clearly, there's a reason for this. They are not my people. I have not chosen them. They are not holy. They would pull you away into idolatry. And by pulling you away into idolatry, I would have no recourse but to destroy you and to do so quickly. So you are to destroy them. They would lead you into grievous sins. You can't make a deal with them. You can't look at them and say, listen, we won't destroy you completely if you keep your religion to yourself and we keep ours to ourselves. You can't make a covenant with them. You can't give your kids over to them in marriage. You can't intermingle with them. You cannot cohabitate with them. They're not even to be your slaves. They're not people to just get along with or to be controlled or what's worse to be put up with. If this happens, what God says is over time, they're going to pollute you because you can't control them. They're going to warp you because you're not in control of them. They will lead you away. Why should they do this? At the end of the passage, it's very clear. You are to be holy, for God is holy. He has called you out as a special people. Therefore, keep his commandments. I don't think Paul is saying something too terribly different from us. Having been redeemed from slavery, while we are never called to go kill people, while we are never called to put them to the sword. We are clearly reading a passage that was delivered to a specific people at a specific time. Paul uses the same kind of language, having said that we have been redeemed from our sins, using the same language as being pulled out of slavery to Egypt. We have been pulled out of slavery to our sin. We are now are to put all that we find to death, everything that would cause sin in our lives. We are to kill it, to smite it, to put an end to it, to utter and complete destruction. If we do, there will be life, long in the land, but peace before God. And we know how the story goes, and it is a warning to us. Joshua and his armies enter the land. They do well. They begin by crushing people before them. And at the end of Joshua's life, he is a faithful and a good leader for the people of Israel, but he cannot bring complete destruction upon all of them. And very slyly, very subtly, the book of Judges begins by hinting at this, this little problem that exists in the nation of Israel, these small spots of cancer that the people of Israel did not get completely eradicated. In Judges 1.18 through 21, for example, Judah, speaking of the lands that they captured, the people that they've killed, Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. All that super good news. Judah's doing what he should have done. The, the people of Judah, the tribe of Judah was doing what it should have done, driving the people out, killing them, devoting them to destruction, inhabiting the land. 
But the book of Judges goes on to say, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Little spots. It's not much. You, you would forgive the people of Israel for looking around and saying, hey, 95%'s pretty good. We had trouble with the chariots of iron. We, we had trouble with these Jebusites, but, but we can handle it. We can control it. They're small in number. No reason to think that these people are going to pull us astray. By the end of the book, their judges, even the saviors of Israel, are acting more like the pagan nations than they're acting like people of God. And by the end of the book, it is impossible, just flat out impossible, to tell where the paganness of the nations ends and where the holiness of Israel begins because they look exactly like the nations. And even they are confused by it. Because they are engaged not in a war with the other nations to eradicate them. They are engaged in a civil war to eradicate one another. Paul implores with us, do the same that God has commanded them. Do not think that you can live with your sin. Do not think that you can survive by putting up with it. Do not think that you can master it, but put it down and kill it all. When you feel it welling in you, put it down. When you feel like you are being led astray, put it down. Because if you let it live, it is cancerous and it will grow and you won't control it. Paul says that all those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Paul will indeed expand this as we will see. I wonder if he mentions this because he has also mentioned that Israel is indeed his firstborn son. We have been redeemed by our own Moses, the better Moses, Jesus Christ. We are helped by the Spirit of Christ to have our sin driven out from us. We are to conquer any and all sin that remains as far as we can for our own good. For we are like Israel, God's sons. So let us, let us act like it. Let us act like we are indeed the sons of God by being holy simply as our God is holy. And you might be wondering, this sounds a lot like salvation that is given to us because of our work. I guess. But God has already redeemed you. He's already given you his spirit. All of that was done completely and utterly and totally by his own free gift. He has promised the Spirit to help drive out. You are to put these things to death through his Spirit, not in spite of his Spirit, not instead of his Spirit, but with the work of the Spirit, you do this. Yes, it's conditional, but the conditionals are there as a means by which the Spirit works. God warns us, and the warnings are always effective for his people. We hear his word and we say, yes, let us strive and struggle to put sin down in our lives. Let's be clear, though. Paul rightly knows that such acts, killing sin and putting it down, are tiresome and wearisome and are difficult. So, at the same time, while he insists that we do it, he gives us two 
very clear pictures of help. Two reminders that hopefully will help us deal with our sin. The first is our second point, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but play with me. Point number two, that we call to the Father. That we call to the Father. As sons, indeed, as children of God, we are able to call God our Father. Paul says, you are not given a spirit of fear to fall back into into slavery. You have received the spirit as a, a spirit of adoption. You're not slaves. He says, this, you're, not, you're not going back to Egypt. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. Slaves aren't free. Slaves do what they're supposed to do because it's demanded of them. Not out of their own pleasure, but because their master calls them to do it. And I think what Paul is saying is, although God is indeed God, and God is indeed commanding, and God is indeed the Lord, I don't think that we are primarily to speak and to think of God that way. We are not to think of God as the gods of Egypt, who is simply a taskmaster over us and demands things out of us for his own good. So that when we fail, as we will, we are punished. But God is like a father to us. Nah, scratch that. God is the father to us. He is not a taskmaster who demands things for his own good, but he's a kindly father who leads us in a good way for our own good. He picks us up in our failure and helps us again and again and again. Therefore, we're not to fear him in the same way that people feared the gods of Egypt. The conditional, again, works for the people of God. We rightly see that sin in our lives drives us from God. We fear not retribution and punishment, but distance from God. We fear being separated from our Father. Fearing retribution is is fearing being near God because we think that God is going to punish us, but that is not who we are. We are not servants of a God. We are children of the Father. Children should not fear the presence of their fathers, but rather the distance that they might have from them. There should be an emptiness being away from them. We ought to fear that emptiness from our God. And Paul specifically says that we are to call God Abba. Not the man, apparently, who is back. That's great news for the five people who actually are fans of them. There's a lot made out of this calling God Abba. Many have made the comparison between Abba and Father, as though Father is like the stuffy, sort of very formal way of talking to God as a parental unit, and Abba is a much more sort of informal, if not intimate way of speaking to God, kind of the difference between Father and Daddy. That seems to be the kind of comparison that's always used, that that you speak the word Father and it's very formal, you speak the word Daddy, it's very informal, and that's kind of what this, this saying crying out Abba means. I, I cannot think of a more English, not just Western, but very English way of referring to, to God and the differences between these two. If, if you've heard that, throw it out. That, that is not what this means at all. It's not sort of an informal way to talk to God, and that's not the reason why it's stated here. You'll notice that it's very odd. 
Paul mentions Abba, and then he says Father directly after it. He says, we cry out Abba, Father. Abba simply means Father. So do we say just Father, Father? Are we just supposed to say it twice? What, What is the purpose of saying Abba, Father? The first thing we need to know is that Abba is not a Greek word. It's written in Greek, and we translate it transliterate it directly into English. It sounds just like Abba in the Greek, and it sounds just like Abba in English, but it's not a Greek word. That tells us what Father is doing directly after it. The people who are reading this have no idea what the word Abba means unless they've been told by somebody else before. It's an Aramaic word. It is the Aramaic word for Father, which is why Father comes directly after it. We are not to call out Abba, Father. We are to call out Abba, which means Father. When Paul puts Father directly behind him, he's simply telling us what it means. And he has to do that because it's not a Greek word. These people wouldn't have known what it meant. The question truly is, why does he include a word that's not Greek? Why include an Aramaic word? Is it just one of those special things where people who get to speak in Latin want to do it all the time, right? To make themselves sound really smart, let's say churchy things in Latin. Okay, maybe that's part of the reason why we kind of like Latin. But... That's not why we say Abba here. I think, I think. Could be wrong. I think the reason why we should find it a privilege to say Abba is not because it's informal, not because it's more intimate, but because for some strange reason, the church thought it important that we call Father, the Father, using the exact same word that Jesus used. Because it would have been the word that he used. When he prayed to the Father, when he spoke to his Father, when he talked about the Father, he wouldn't have been using Greek words like we find in the New Testament. He would have been using Aramaic words. The word that would have come out of his mouth would have been Abba. Not because God was more intimate with him, not because the Father was close, not because they were on like, real bro terms, him and daddy. That's not why. It's because that is the word that they use for father. It's just Abba. Jesus spoke this way. You are to think of God as your father. Not exactly the same way that Jesus was related to the father, but very, very close to it. That the nearness that Christ had with the father the beloved nature of the Son and the Father, the relationship between those two is the same relationship that you are to have with the Father. Not one of judgment, not one of wrath, not one of punishment, but one of love. This is my beloved Son. How many times throughout the Gospels do we hear, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. One of the most amazing things said in the Gospel of John, which, frankly, is just chocked full of amazing statements, probably the most underrated of all those amazing things, is John 17, 26. Jesus says to his disciples, in the night that he's going to be betrayed, as he's praying to God, he says, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known 
that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. We kind of cease at some point in time to have any sort of appropriate language to speak of the intensity of the bond and the unity between the Father and the Son. We, we just we lose all ability. We, we say things like, well, they're of the same nature. And we can speak of true love and things like that. But what we end up finding is that the word we use for love just it's polluted by the way we think of love, by the way we have love for people. The love of the Father for the Son is stronger and more powerful and more richer than any love that you have ever experienced in your life. Think of a time when you have felt the most emotion for any one person. Hopefully it's a person. Maybe it's for a burger or something like that, but I'm hoping it's a person. Think of the time that you felt the most emotion in that person, that, that you, you looked at them with pride or with admiration or with joy or, or love or longing that they were separated from you and you wanted them to be near you so badly the time of the most intense feelings that you've ever had, where you, you, you felt like, I don't know, we, we use the English word heart, right? But you just felt like overcome with love. That is, is but a candle to the incredible love that the Father has for the Son. And Jesus says, that is the same love that the Father has for you because you are in Christ. So when you cry out, Abba, you are admitting and confessing that that love is yours. Not a love that punishes or crushes when you mess up, which, friends, you will. Not a love, or not, not a relationship, not a fatherly relationship that you have, to, you have to cower in fear, hoping that he doesn't crush you like some little insignificant ant when you fail. What Paul is saying is God loves you with the same love that he has for the Son. You get to call him by the same name. Do you realize that? the very same relationship that Jesus has with the Father, this is given to you. My goodness, kill your sin. Work at it. You ever known people who didn't want to do something because they were afraid of failing? You're going to fail. Here's good news. God loves you. He cares about you. He's not going to push you away because you fail at trying to be holy. He will pick you up. He will place you right and you will run again. Go again and again and again back to the Father crying to him because you are sons. And thirdly, consider your inheritance. There's good news. 
you are heirs. It's always a nice thing to hear. It's always nice when somebody tells you that you have inherited something other than the fact that someone probably died in order to give that to you. But we've got better news here. He died and he rose again, but we are inheritors of him. We are heirs. Amazingly, just as much as John 17 might be underrated, what Paul says here might be underrated. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are heirs of God. How many people sell themselves short when they think of heaven and they just think of all the nice stuff that they're going to have in heaven? All the good stuff that they're going to get as though heaven was just America kind of on steroids without all the contention and all the fighting and all the fussing and all the death. Like, Paul's, don't do that. Like, you don't understand how good you've got it because you don't just get the stuff. You get the God who made all the good stuff. You get to go directly to the source. You don't have to, you don't have to wait for the stuff. You get all the goodness that is not filtered through the stuff. All the glory, all the, the might, all the joy, all the gladness, all the beauty, all the power of God. It is, it is yours. It is yours. You inherit that. You are co-heirs with Christ. How, how much we would love to continue to talk about this, and we get to. But then Paul throws a big old wet blanket on the whole proceeding. Like Debbie Downer says, Provided that you suffer with him. Thanks, Eeyore. We could have just, you know, stopped there and really dwelled on all the good stuff. But he says, provided that you, you suffer with him. And again, that conditional comes out, right? You've got to suffer with him. It's like a, a bad movie or a bad TV show. You can have all this if, you know, you put your hand in this mystery box. You might lose it. It might just be jello. Either way, it's going to be unpleasant, you know, provided that you suffer with him. So what kind of suffering is this? I, I doubt that it's persecution exactly. You might think, well, okay, so these are the people of Rome. And we know that persecution broke out in Rome. We know that, that Nero, very early on in the church, was burning Christians as sort of nightlights, right? We look toward the end of the chapter, and it's not a bad guess because Paul mentions specifically that persecution is going to happen. In verse 35, he says, What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So clearly persecution is there. Is that what he has in mind here? I don't think so. I think the two are related but the persecutions hadn't happened yet. Nero watched as Rome burned in AD 64. It wouldn't have been until after that that he started persecuting Christians. This letter was written no later than AD 57 or 58. This doesn't match up. The persecution was fairly narrow if there was any persecution happening for Christians at the time. There are two kinds of suffering, I think, both related to one another, and I think that one is particular here, and it leads to the other I think what Paul is talking about here is suffering for holiness. How many times are we warned in the New Testament about the hard life of a Christian? Perhaps the most stunning example of this is Jesus saying, take up your cross and follow me. Anyone who comes after me, wants to follow me, has to take up his cross daily and follow me. This isn't a picture of dying to persecution daily. 
No one can do that. No one does that. It is a picture of laying yourself down as Jesus did, as the cross becomes a symbol of, laying down your own self-interest for the good of others by taking up a cross. It is by desiring the will of God above everything else in the world. It is a desire and a picture of daily holiness before God, of desiring to do the very will of God no matter how hard. Jesus would say, the road is easy and the gate is wide that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. But the road that leads to life has a narrow gate, and it is extraordinarily hard. This is what he means. Any attempt to become holy in this world is filled with suffering. Eventually, that kind of holiness will lead to persecution. Christians weren't killed in the first century or any time. They weren't killed because they looked like the world. The martyrs in the first century weren't killed because they acted just like every other Greek person around them. Christians in the first century were killed because they acted like Christ, because they didn't confess what everyone else confessed. They didn't act like everyone else acted. They strove for holiness. Christ himself suffered, not simply on the cross. He suffered in his everyday life. Imagine how easy it would have been for Jesus to slide through life. Philippians 2 does just this. There Paul writes, Although Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. He didn't just coast. He didn't take on human flesh and then say, yeah, but I'm just going to lean on the divinity and we're just going to ride this thing out. No, he takes on human flesh and he undergoes all of the, the frailty of that human flesh. He undergoes thirst and hunger he undergoes temptations. He undergoes all of the, the difficulties that come with broken relationships. He could have shown up and said, listen, just all of you need to shut up and listen to me. You need to do what I tell you, when I tell you. And that's the end of it. He has the equality with God. He's more than capable of doing that kind of thing. But he didn't. Rather, he suffered. He suffered the ignorance of the disciples. He suffered the blasphemy of the Pharisees. He suffered and was patient. He suffered and was kind. He healed people day after day after day, wearing him out, bearing our burdens. He healed insignificant people. He battled powerful people. He served all. He made his life more difficult to help others in love. That is what Paul is first and foremost calling you to. He knows that putting your sin to death is painful and it is hard. He says, this is precisely the same thing that Jesus did. And I think in talking about this, directly connected to our inheritance is to remind us that that is the end goal. That's what we're working for. That is what we are to keep in our sights. You will never, friends, you will never regret 
suffering for holiness in this world. Like all those who go to the Olympics, simply because they loved what they did, those who have the Spirit of Christ, who suffer to be holy, who suffer to do what is right at a personal cost to them, who look for the good of others well before then, before themselves, and endure all of that on your deathbed when you are about to inherit the very kingdom of God. I guarantee you, you will not say, I wish I hadn't suffered that much. I wish I had taken the easier path. Find the glory of God through that. And know that God's good purposes are never thwarted, they never fail, they never falter, and that your efforts in this will never be in vain. God loves you. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit together love you. And you have a grand inheritance that is worth far more than your sin. Kill your sin and live God. Let's pray. Abba, our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is our great and merciful Savior, asking for your continual help and support. We know that all efforts and strivings without your aid and even without your mercies are nothing before you. Yet even the smallest work, when yielded through the grace of your Spirit, is guaranteed to produce much fruit in us. So work in us that our work would not be in vain. Help us to see the glorious end of our work in holiness, that we may persevere until our dying day, that we might gain a beautiful and incomparable inheritance in Jesus Christ. Not in our own work, not in our own power, but through him who powerfully works in us. We ask these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. If you would stand and sing with us, there is a Redeemer.